Good afternoon and welcome to this Regulatory Transparency Project webinar. Today we will be discussing Title VI, College Admissions and Public Opinion. We are very much looking forward to an informative discussion. My name is Nate Kazmarek. I am Vice President and Director of RTP. As always, please note that uh, all expressions of opinion are those of our guests today. And we are uh, very happy to once more welcome uh, an excellent moderator in Linda Chavez. Hi, Linda, how are you? I see you're muted, so I'll... <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> Good, and glad to have you. I think uh, Linda is certainly well known to our audience. She serves as chairman of the Center for Equal Opportunity. She has published uh, opinions and columns in newspapers across the country and, and appears regularly on cable news. She's an author of three books, Out of the Barrio Toward uh, New Politics of Hispanic Assimilation, an unlikely conservative, the transformation of an ex-liberal, and betrayal, how union bosses shake down their members and corrupt American politics. Uh, Linda has a uh, very distinguished career, which you can read about in full, along with the complete bios of all our guests today on our website, regproject.org. In a moment, I'll turn it over to Linda. Uh, once our speakers have had ample time to debate and discuss our topic, we'll go to audience Q&A. So please think of the questions that you'd like to ask them. Audience questions uh, can be submitted via the chat function on Zoom, uh, and we will endeavor to uh, answer as many of the questions as you submit uh, through the chat function. With that, thank you everyone for, uh, for being with us today. Linda, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Nate. It's a pleasure to be with all of you and to talk about what has been a controversial issue for my entire career, uh, dating back to the early 1970s when I taught at UCLA in the, one of the affirmative action programs at UCLA. Uh, we talk about affirmative action in higher education. It is a um, program that goes by that name and other net names and has been used uh, by public colleges and private colleges and universities going back, as I say, to the late 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, but it has been controversial from the beginning. And the uh, Center for Equal Opportunity, which has existed since 1995, has done a number of studies of affirmative action admissions to colleges and universities. We studied dozens of such schools and one of our speakers today, our main speaker, uh, has been uh, a participant in those studies going back uh, more than 25 years now. The, uh, the practice um, began uh, to be most controversial in legal circles uh, during the 1970s. And the first big Supreme Court decision involving affirmative action was filed by a man named Alan Bakke, who was twice turned down for admission to the University of California Medical School at Davis. In 1978, uh, it came, uh, his case came before the court and the court struck down uh, part of the UC Davis program, which essentially uh, set aside a certain number of slots that would be available only for minority applicants. The court decided that uh, that constituted a quota and was unconstitutional. However, um, in a very convoluted study, uh, a convoluted uh, finding uh, by the court, uh, the court determined that uh, diversity could be a compelling state interest. And so long as the university did not use a specific uh, quota or give um, particular, uh, make race the only factor in consideration for certain slots, um, diversity could uh, be considered. Uh, that case in 1978 uh, stood pretty much until it was challenged uh, in 2003 by uh, the, a student uh, at the University of Michigan. Uh, and in that uh, particular case, which was known as Bruder versus Bollinger, a five to four decision uh, found on um, this, by the way, the decision was uh, authored by Sandra Day O'Connor, that race could be considered as one factor that campus uh, diversity was in fact uh, co a compelling state interest. But she also opined that she expected that race as a factor in admission uh, was a temporary measure and would probably 
uh, not be needed after 25 years. We are coming very close uh, to the 25-year anniversary of that case. Then um, also in 2003, another case at the University of Mission Michigan, Gratz versus Bollinger, involved the law school there. And in that case, much like in Bakke, there was an actual point system with a certain number of points being allotted to people based on their skin color. That, in fact, was struck down. So two decisions came out in 2003, one upholding diversity uh, and using race as a factor, but striking down, again, the notion that race being the determining factor uh, did not go. Uh, then in Texas, uh, there was a Fifth Circuit Court opinion in the Hopwood case um, involving a student named Cheryl Hopwood, who um, applied to the university uh, and um, also alleged that race being a factor in the admission denied her, uh, her uh, rights under Title VI and the Constitution. And the Fifth Circuit uh, basically struck down the University of uh, te uh, Texas uh, system uh, that used race as a factor. And so Texas decided to adopt, uh, uh, by the way, that decision was appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided not to take it. So that decision reigned throughout the circuit. Uh, and in that case, uh, the University of Texas decided that they would adopt uh, a plan in which 10% of the student body in the UT system would be admitted uh, as long as they were graduates of the top 10% of their uh, local uh, high school. Uh, but 90% uh, would be admitted under a different program that again, would take race into account as one factor in admission. That case was, uh, even though it was only in the circuit, uh, there was a student at uh, University of Texas who uh, filed suit in uh, the mid 2000s, uh, 2016, uh, in the case Fisher versus University of Texas. Uh, a decision was handed down that said that the 90% um, admission uh, program that the University of Texas used where race was considered a single factor uh, was permissible, that it did pass the strict scrutiny um, uh, question. And uh, that decision was handed down four to three with Justice Anthony Kennedy handing down the decision. There were only seven members who considered that case. Uh, Justice Scalia had uh, recently died and Justice uh, Kagan uh, decided to recuse herself. Uh, from the case. So that's sort of where we are now. Um, the uh, Supreme Court is taking up uh, two cases of this term, uh, one involving Harvard University and the other involving the University of North Carolina. And that's the lay of the land legally. Uh, what we're here to discuss today is how the public feels about that. And we have uh, an excellent analysis that Althea Nagai, um, has produced for the Center for Equal Opportunity, and it's available and up uh, on our website. Uh, Althea uh, is a uh, senior research fellow at uh, the Center for Equal Opportunity. She has done, as I mentioned, uh, many of CEO studies, all of which uh, are available on our website, uh, including studies at uh, Virginia, and Michigan, and Arizona, uh, as well as others. And she has written two papers for the Center for Equal Opportunity among her many published works. One was called Too Many Asian Americans uh, and the other was Harvard Investigates Harvard. Uh, joining us today, in addition to Althea, is Theodore Johnson, who is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center. Uh, he is also director of the uh, Brennan Center's Fellows Program. He has a very distinguished and long career. I won't go into all of it, but uh, he is a retired commander in the U.S. Navy. Uh, he was a White House fellow, and he was also a military professor at the Naval War College. He's also uh, the author of um, a very distinguished uh, book, one that I uh, commend all of you. And uh, that book is called uh, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Althea to present her paper. Hi, 
Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about public opinion. Um, am I coming on here? Yes. Okay, good. Um, now, public opinions generally show that when asked, America's, Americans reject the idea of racial preferences in college admissions. And these polls typically report on the public as a whole. Now, the problem occurs when they sometimes will pull out the subgroups and the subgroups are relatively small. And here we're talking about fewer than 200 Blacks, even fewer Hispanics, and typically no Asians. So what Pew did in 2019, they surveyed an enormous number of different racial and ethnic groups so that we could do subgroup comparisons comfortably. In the Pew survey, we had roughly 1,500 Blacks, 1,600 Hispanics. We had also 300 Asians, and we had about fewer, um, about 3,000 whites. Okay, so with this large number, they could ask all sorts of different questions regarding um, encounters about race. Um, and one of the things they asked was about college admissions. They wanted to know they listed eight factors and Pew wanted to know whether respondents thought each of these factors should be a major factor, a minor factor, or should not be a factor at all. Okay, the factors were academic factors, high school grades and test scores, um, the non-academic, you know, um, community service, athletics. They asked about um, being the first in the family to go to college. And they also asked legacy, race, and gender. So I'm going to talk about each of these factors and how these the um, whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians felt about each of these factors as it related to college admissions. Now, essentially, regarding academics, there was a large consensus. There was an overwhelming majority in each of these groups saying that grades should be a major factor in college admissions. Uh, let's see, test scores came in second and four out of 10 whites, blacks, Hispanics, and two out of three Asians said test scores should be a major factor. Okay, so we have grades and test scores. There was some agreement, there was a plurality that also said, Community service should be a minor factor in um, college admissions. And from there on, um, we have, we start to see that the other factors, there's some disagreement and then it breaks down by race. There was disagreement among the racial groups regarding whether first in the family should be a, a factor in college admissions. Most whites thought being the first in the family, most whites thought being first in the family should not be a factor in college admissions, okay. In contrast, half or more of Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians thought being first in the family should be a factor in college admissions. So if you think about this as social mobility in class, you really have um, this kind of breakout. I use that as an indicator of how much these groups favor social classes a factor. Um, the others have to do with, oh, the other one that was not popular was athletics. Okay, the majority thought athletics should not be a factor. Six in 10 whites thought athletics should not be a factor at all. And in agreement were roughly half the blacks and half the Hispanics, not a factor. Now. Most Asians thought it should be either a major or minor factor in college admissions, which I was kind of surprised. <clears throat> okay, after that, they asked about legacy. In other words, should having a relative that attended the college be a major, minor, or not a factor at all in admissions? Most in every group, thought legacy, these legacy connections should not be a factor. So we have that kind of agreement. 
Now, finally, there's the issue of race and gender. Now, on the issue of race, significant majorities of every group thought that race should not be a factor in college admissions. And let me go over the numbers a little bit, okay. 78% of whites thought race should not be a factor, but it also included 66% of Hispanics, 62% of Blacks, and 58% of Asians. Race, not a factor. How many thought race should be a major factor? Here we're talking about 4% of whites, roughly one in five Blacks, little over 10% of Hispanics and Asians. So race was not a popular, was, was rejected by those surveyed. Of course, it doesn't matter given, you know, court opinion is not, court decisions are not dependent on public opinion. I realize that. Now, the least popular factor in college admissions was gender. 86% of whites thought gender should not be a factor at all. In agreement, we had 72% of Blacks, 76% of Hispanics, and 68% of Asians. I mean, that's a, that was the most significant finding, I think, is how much the survey public rejected gender as a factor. Um, let's assume that there's a certain, you know, this is just a survey, and the question becomes then, what does this look like in reality? And here I'm gonna turn briefly to California because we did a short study of California Proposition 16. And in 2020, California had on the ballot um, a pro proposition that would bring back affirmative action. In other words, bring back racial preferences in government hiring, government jobs and gov government, um, government jobs government contracting and, and government public higher education. Okay, in the California case, 2020, Biden won California 64 to 34. Okay, Proposition 16, which wanted to bring back racial preferences in these categories. <coughs> Prop 16, lost. Voters rejected Prop 16, 57, no, 43, yes. Even in LA County, which was the largest county, it's a majority minority county, Prop 16 won with only 51% of the vote. So from all this public opinion and the case study of California, I don't think there's a lot of support when the public has a chance to weigh in. I don't think there's a lot of support for using racial preferences in um, government, contracts, government hiring, and of course, public education. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much, uh, Althea. And I'm gonna turn it over uh, to Ted. And Ted, um, would like to hear your response. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Again, I, I love that we're having this conversation and, and wish there were more like it. Um, and I found the findings from the research really fascinating, but I'll be honest that they weren't that surprising to me. Um, you know, I'm a black dude and grew up in uh, North Carolina, the son of a father who was Republican, a mother who was a Democrat. And if you were to ask them um, whether or not they think race should play a factor and whether or not <laughs> they got uh, accepted to the colleges that they went to, or whether they got hired by their corporations, they would say no, that they would want to be considered on the merits of their work, on their intelligence. Um, yet we live in a society where meritocracy is not always the thing by which we, we uh, is not the system by which we judge people's talents or ability to do work. And so as the Supreme Court has said, uh, and, and frankly, a question we should still ask ourselves, ourselves is whether or not diversity is really a compelling state interest. And if the answer is yes, then even when people say that they prefer race not be considered at all, if under such a construct, we don't create diverse environments, either for our students or for our workplace, and the state has said that diversity is a compelling state interest, 
then the state has a duty to incentivize that diversity um, or, or allow organizations or entities that want to pursue diversity to do so, even if the people say, we don't want you to think about race. Um, and you know this plays out in a few ways. And I think the, the way to tackle it that may be most tangible is to ask why most Black Americans, most Hispanic Americans, most Asian Americans don't like race, don't want race to be considered um, when it comes to hiring or to admissions. And I can tell you, um, as, as was mentioned um, by uh, upfront, that I spent 21 years in the military and I have heard on two occasions myself said directly to me that my selection as a White House fellow and my promotion to uh, commander where this, the latter was said to be an affirmative action handout. And again, that wasn't hearsay, someone said that to me. And the other, my selection as a White House fellow in the first Obama administration, um, it was said that it was because I was black with the black president that this was how um, I landed these two things. Now the military is supposed to be maybe the most meritocratic institution when it comes to promotion in the United States. And I had fellow officers telling me, basically you got it because you were black. One of the reasons that we don't see large support for race as a factor in admissions, um, as this survey sort of shows, is, is the stigma attached to you when you actually accomplish goals, when you, when you overachieve or when you meet all and exceed all expectations. There is an assumption that the only reason you can be in that space is because race helps you get in the door. And what I see these numbers sell, telling us, the story that they're saying is that um, minority Americans are rejecting the implication that their achievements are only a result of their race or ethnicity group. Uh, and so it is not so much that they reject the idea that having diverse campuses or workplaces are not good. It is a rejection of the idea that every one of their achievements should be attached, an asterisk should be attached to it because it was only because of that factor and not their grades and not their test scores that allowed them to th that achievement. Now, you know, whatever you might think of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson and her judicial philosophy, et cetera, the, once President Biden said that he was going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, immediately there were comments about whoever this person is being less qualified and whoever this person is um, being, uh, I, I think a couple of senators, one called her the, the beneficiary of racial quotas, another an affirmative action handout, and she had not even been named when these things came out. This is what I'm talking about. So now after Biden does name her, she has these uh, the, the stigma attached to her that the only reason she could have ever been a Supreme Court justice is because of her race and in her case, her gender. Um, and so a rejection of these kinds of, of um, of preferences, racial preferences, or consideration of race is a rejection of the idea that uh, that folks like us can only belong in places, only achieve certain things because of our race and not because of the other talents. Uh, the, the open question remains, okay, if race, if diversity is a compelling state interest, and I believe that it is, and if race is one of the considerations to create a diverse society, a diverse, diverse institutions, which I think is, is also good, uh, then the question of implementation of execution is the thing we're actually arguing about. And this is this, this is where the Supreme Court has not given us very good guidance. Every time a new case comes up, it says for this particular instance, it's no good. For this particular instance, that's acceptable, but there's no blanket guidance except for the fact that racial quotas are not acceptable um, when it comes to admissions or, or hiring. Uh, some government contracts quotas are, are still around. So um, I like Texas's system, um, its university system, which says that if you graduate in the top 10% of your high school class, no matter where in the state you are, you get automatic admission to the University of Texas. And that means that the inner city school in Houston, whose academic profile doesn't look anything like the suburb school of Dallas, if you finish in the top 10% of either of those schools, automatic admission, I, I like that. And then for the remaining slots, race is a factor among many. And the Supreme Court and Fisher v. Texas, both iterations essentially said, that sounds good. In Seattle, in the parents involved case, they said, um, if you force a, a, force a um, percentage of diversity, by racial and ethnic group for your public schools, that's not permissible because um, you're basically setting some kind of uh, percentage guidelines for each race and then moving students around to meet these guidelines and that's eerily close, close to a, a quota. 
so um, this this is where we are today. We have to def if if we do believe that diversity is good for the country, if we do believe that racial diversity is one of the many diversities, including first gen, uh, including uh, class and gender, et cetera, if we believe that these are these things should be considerations then the open question is how best to implement this such that no uh, no one group is unduly preferred or unduly discriminated against in the interest of, of creating diversity. And uh, this is, uh, I think we'll get another indication of where the Supreme Court is on this in the next term. Thanks very much, Ted. Uh, let me just mention uh, that in 1996 in the state of California, uh, Althea talked about the proposal that was on the ballot in 2020 to reverse what was a constitutional amendment uh, in California that essentially banned consideration of race in college admissions, in contracting and in employment. Um, many people said when that initiative passed in 1996 that we were gonna have resegregation of colleges and universities in California. That is not in fact what happened. Uh, the numbers of black and Latino students who attended college in the state actually went up um, system-wide. Uh, there was a, a difference in some of the schools, students who might have previously been admitted under uh, an affirmative action uh, racial preference at say UC Berkeley or UCLA may have ended up going to Riverside or Santa Barbara or one of the other uh, schools in the system. But the overall numbers of students graduating actually went up. And if my recollection is correct, uh, so did the numbers of students who actually graduated from college, because mm -hmm. after all, getting in is just the first step. Um, but I wanted to talk um, and, and throw a question to Althea, uh, because I think uh, Ted has done a very good job uh, in describing the uh, complaints about um, banning race as a consideration that somehow uh, we would have a lack of diversity. But the two cases that are going to be before the, the courts this year, uh, Althea, you've written about them extensively. And in this instance, well, we have not, I think I lost you white, here. not white students um, who uh, have uh, been denied uh, access uh, to Harvard, uh, but Asian students, another racial minority, and one that frankly um, has experienced significant discrimination over the long history of the, their tenure in the U.S. So maybe just for a minute, you might respond to that, Althea. Um, wow. I lost you in the connection there. I'm having an unstable internet connection. Ah. So if you can condense it into okay, one question. Okay, so my, my response was, what about Harvard, where it's not white students? It, it oh. isn't that, that Harvard would become all white. Right. Uh, it's that Harvard right. might become uh, increasingly Asian and yet Asians are a minority that has been discriminated against uh, over the long history. Uh, I mean, this is, this is, I, I've, I have to say, you know, in the eighties where I think, and, and there are some schools where Asians are given a small preference. Um, you know, in the eighties, Asians were considered a, in the preference group and all of a sudden the thing switches and it is head spinning. Um, I think in Harvard's case, my impression was given their models that had they just looked at academics, I think it would be a majority Asian. And so they started, you know, they have all these other, I mean, the parallel is also when, you know, in the 1920s, when they wanted to keep down the, have a informal quota, have a limit on the number of Jewish students at Harvard, um, they would introduce all these other factors. And most significant was the personal interview. And we find when we look at the Asian kids in Harvard that the personal interview, again, was the most significant factor um, regarding predicting um, admissions. So in those areas where you, I think, where you have a lot of flexibility and judgment and you can play with decisions, you can actually introduce some of these you can actually have race as a bigger factor, but but under the guise of other things like the, you know, personal interview, which of course doesn't apply to public universities where you have, you know, 60,000 applicants, but um, the smaller private schools, that's where it does make a difference, I think, so. 
Uh, let me uh, throw open uh, some of the questions that we've gotten uh, from the participants. Uh, the first question from Christopher Akalina is, let me ask something no one has been able to answer. How do we define what category someone can check for their race on an application? Do we go by skin color or bloodline? How far back in the bloodline do we allow <laughs> someone to go? They might have Hispanic heritage five generations back. Does that make them Hispanic? As for skin color, I am white, but have been mistaken for being Cuban and can tan dark enough to look Egyptian. Doesn't that throw skin color out? I'm gonna throw that one to you, Ted. Yeah, so this is, you know, when you hear people say race is a social construct, this is what they're talking about, that it's not just about skin color. It's not just about physical or facial appearances, but there's so much more built into it. Um, and, and it's a complicated question. Look, I, I remember reading a study about black students at Harvard Business School and how a large percentage of them were actually black immigrant students from, from Nigeria or from the Caribbean and not actually black American students. And so, and often those black immigrant students had means to pay full tuition in a way that perhaps many of the African-American students who applied may not have. And so you sort of meet your black, you know, you appear diverse even though you have a very low number of black Americans there, even though, but a very large number of black students or, or some significant mm -hmm. number. Um, and so when we say we want diversity, we have to um, one, be very cognizant of what it is we're asking for, what, what kind of diversity we're trying to build. And then two, to the, the question, how do we determine what someone is? Uh, you know, Rachel Dolezal went around telling people that she was a black woman for many decades, even leading chapters of the NAACP, and it only came out that she was actually white because her parents are white and um, and expressed so in their interviews and on their driver's licenses, et cetera. Um, so I don't know, you know, current day when someone checks the box white and Hispanic, um, does the university do an investigation to determine where that Hispanic heritage comes in? Or if someone says that I'm, you know, one sixteenth Native American. Um, do they have to produce papers to show that they've affiliated with the tribe before they're eligible for, you know, particular scholarships or, or um, a different kind of racial consideration? Um, there are no hard and fast rules here. And uh, each institution will sort of have to weigh this. Um, I, I don't know if this is a place for the government to, to, to make its um, to stake a, a position here when they've done so in the past using things like grandfather clauses it was actually a way a means right. to discriminate against people and not a way to create a better kind of governance um, but institutions will need to be very uh, clear about th these kind of categories um, in service of the kind of student body they're trying to build and whatever procedures they come up with doing so um, you know will, will need to be justified but will also need to be sort of uh, carefully thought through do you want to weigh in on that? Um, my impression was, for the most part, um, have having known people who work in admissions and having filled out those endless questionnaires and census things and other survey instruments, it's really self-identification. Um, and you, we don't really, I mean, my impression with admissions is they have so many applicants that if you say you're X, Y, or Z, they will just take it as a category. Um, you can check more than one now, so it does get more complicated. Um, but my impression is that since for decades, it's always been self-identification and the institution will not ask questions. Again, probably so that they don't get into any legal problems. Yeah, I, I guess my response uh, on this would be that the law is pretty clear. Uh, and despite the Supreme Court's uh, finding the, the diversity rationale, the law says you can't discriminate against someone because of their race or their color. Uh, that would seem to make Harvard, if, if Harvard is, as Althea pointed out in her excellent paper, uh, engaging in interviews where they can essentially downgrade Asian students uh, as not having the personality they want uh, at Harvard, despite having the best test scores and the best grades, um, that sounds a lot like discrimination to me, which is why we have a case before the Supreme Court. I would also say, even in terms of self-identification, um, I uh, am a contrarian and sometimes refuse to fill out the box. Um, I did that uh, a couple of years ago at my doctor's office and was surprised when I later got 
a form back saying check off to make sure everything is correct. I hadn't checked a race or ethnicity box. Uh, And what came back was that I was African-American, which I thought was quite peculiar, but uh, maybe they were hoping to, you know, show that they had a very diverse patient clientele. Maybe it was a mistake, who knows? Uh, So, you know, this whole identification uh, issue, I think, uh, is one uh, that, that's difficult. I'm going to go on to some more questions. This one is to you, Ted. You say that, and it's from Theodore Gebhardt, um, you say that if the state has a compelling interest in racial diversity, um, it should trump popular opinion. The question is, does a state have a mind? Who determines compelling interests? Aren't the people sovereign? Isn't the create uh, the state a creation of the people? Isn't the state supposed to be subordinate to the people? Whoops. Okay. Yeah. Great question. Um, and and this is it, this is it's, it's a difficult one. So yes, states are are basically their people. Um, but states are not sentient beings. They they are they are geopolitical entities that are governed by their interests. Um, If we look at the founding of the country, it was in the state's interest to create a nation where all men are created equal, where they have these unalienable rights and and, 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 uh, government derived its just powers from the consent of the governed, but they didn't allow women to vote. They allowed the institution of slavery to persist. In the first presidential election of 1790, only 6% of the people in this country were able to cast a vote for George or against George Washington. Um, So if, if the state is only governed by the will of its people. Sometimes the tyranny of the majority can cause a state to live in a way that's that contravenes its expressed ideals of equality, of liberty, of, of prosperity and opportunity. So in those instances, and, and the fact that we have a liberal democracy, it is incumbent upon the state to protect the rights of the minority, even if public opinion suggests that the majority um, would rather not do so. Uh, If we look at an issue like guns, the vast majority of Americans want more background checks on who owns a gun. And uh, we don't have gun reform in this country. It's very difficult to pass because those with uh, that have the most influence over the national interest don't see it as uh, an important issue that needs to be tackled. So pub- if public opinion, again, governed public policy, then the sec- our, our interpretation of the Second Amendment would look very different than what the Supreme Court said in Heller or what the, you know, the lack of action in Congress um, uh, has, has led to. In fact, there's a, a case in front of the Supreme Court this term around guns and whether they can be transported, you know, fully assembled and whether you need permits, et cetera. So it's still an open question. So this is, I don't know if this is going to be a satisfactory answer, but though people constitute nations, nations' interests are not simply the expression of public will. Nations' interests, uh, they do what what they perceive to be in their interests, which is often determined by those who lead and those who wield influence over those who lead, and not simply a translation of of public will, and certainly not the uh, the activation or sort of the implementation of uh, polling results. I would say, though, Ted, that in the case of California, Uh, The sovereign people of California in 1996 decided they wanted to ban race as a consideration in state hiring and and contracting and universities. Uh, Interestingly, um, it was not challenged. It did not, you know, did not get challenged in the courts and and up the chain to the Supreme Court. Uh, It held and it held until 2020 when once again the question was put before the people of California and they up. Uh, upheld uh, the uh, the ban on race. So, uh, if uh, in fact banning race as a consideration uh, was un- unconstitutional under the Fourteenth Amendment, which applies to the states, uh, was uh, it, it is surprising to me that uh, some of the advocates of affirmative action have not decided to make that case. Uh, and take it all the way to the court. So public opinion can play a role. Uh, The people deciding that they don't want race use uh, seems to be fine. And it would be one thing if, uh, as all the doomsdayers said, we had seen uh, resegregation of schools in California. But as I suggested, the the numbers just don't bear that out. I'm gonna move on to another uh, question. Uh, And this is also for you, Ted, uh, which is how would you remove the stigma that you described uh, while still maintaining racial purposes? How do you you go about doing that? 
Yeah, it's extremely difficult. And some of it, uh, frankly, lots of it is beyond um, one's control. Uh, again, to, to the personal example, if I was a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy after 12, 13 years of, of you know, 14, 15 years of service and had been selected for commander, why was the commander promotion and affirmative action handout, but not the, the previous uh, promotions or the performance that allowed me to be selected for that? Uh, and so the easy answer is to say, for those who um, are admitted to these universities or hired in particular jobs or given certain promotions to really excel in those positions so that you become the rebuttal to the asterisk, to the stigma. Um, but if that was sufficient enough, then um, I wouldn't have had someone say to me that my promotion was a affirmative action handout. So this is a, this is a societal issue. issue. Um, it's what uh, Princeton professor Eddie Glaude calls the value gap. Um, that we just have different conceptions uh, of where races fit in a kind of social hierarchy in this country. And if we consider Black people on the whole to be less academically inclined, to be um, less likely to assimilate to sort of a dominant American culture, to be um, inferior on a number of other characteristics, then when someone excels, they become the exception to the rule instead of a case that shows the rule is BS. Um, so, I, I, you know, in, in order for us to remove the asterisk, we have to we have to uh, tackle head on the kind of hierarchies we create in our society. And, and that is, a, frankly, like a long term cultural issue that public policy is not is not um, sufficient in and of itself to address. You're muted, Linda. That's what happens when you get old. <laughs> um, and I was gonna say, uh, my, my experience uh, similar to yours, uh, Ted, has been you know, people questioning uh, whether or not I benefited from affirmative action, particularly in getting into college. And I have a very easy and simple answer and that's I'm too old. <laughs> I was in school before they had such preferences. So that absolves me. Um, the, um, the, uh, there was uh, one of the panelists or one of the uh, participants said that the case has been made that the court held that the state could afford greater protection from racial classification than the Supreme Court found um, the 14th Amendment uh, afforded and that they held that the 14th Amendment allowed but did not compel race conscious admissions. And that of course is what the findings were uh, in the, uh, the Michigan cases. And uh, that's one of the things that's, that's going to be being uh, uh, challenged this time. Um, and I guess one of the uh, responses to your uh, answer Ted was, wouldn't eliminating racial preferences help remove that stigma? Uh, no, no, because there is no racial quota in military promotions. There's no racial, there's no affirmative action when it comes to promotions. Um, and so if that were the case, someone, no one would have said that to me. Um, but there's this implicit uh, um, view that all of our nation has kinds of racial preferences. I've seen you know interviews on from NPR to CNN to Fox News uh, when it comes to welfare benefits or when it comes to job callbacks or apartment callbacks that um, white Americans saying it's you know if I were black I would have gotten that job or if I were black I would have gotten that apartment or I would have gotten this you know so even in institutions like the military where diversity is is in the military's interest to create and, and sort of um, and, and cultivate, um, there are no racial quotas. There, there are no, uh, we, we've promoted this many people to this rank, but only 5% are black. So go back and five, 5% 5 more black people to, to even the numbers out, that doesn't happen. So if that were the, the, the answer, then um, I, I would have seen it play out in my career and, and it, it just hasn't worked out that way. Althea, I'm going to uh, follow up with this uh, with you because uh, you have done many of the studies for the Center for Eagle Opportunity, uh, looking at uh, the various uh, factors that are taken uh, into account in college admissions. Uh, and maybe you could just briefly suggest, you know, one of the one of the allegations uh, is, well, you know, race is just one factor among many, and it isn't really all that significant. What does um, the bulk of your work show in terms of how large a factor race is uh, in 
determining mm-hmm. who gets into colleges and universities at, at elite universities where they are highly competitive. Among, we've done studies of the, of the flagship public universities. And um, let's say a place like the University of Virginia or the University of Michigan, um, next to test scores and grades, race is the dominant factor. Um, it, and again, what we use in these studies, we actually use the applicant data and we have race and we ask for um, you know, test scores, grades, we ask, um, we have in-state versus out-of-state, again, because these are all state institutions. And we found that in, let's say, in a state like Virginia, wow, I believe oftentimes Black out-of-state students, again, controlling for test scores and grades, had had the largest preference as out-of-state was outweighed by being Black. So if you're Black and out-of-state, you had a greater chance, probability of getting in, given a certain test score and grade combo. You had a greater chance of getting in as opposed to all other groups. And if you were Asian at that level, you were more likely to be rejected. I mean, that I'm just using uh, University of Virginia as, as, as an example. Um, the schools have gotten, what's interesting is a place like Virginia compared to the 1990s, they've used race. They've put less emphasis on race in admissions. Um, that in other words, our statistics have shown it reduced as a factor and they put a lot more emphasis on being in state. Again, it may be the politics of it, but I think Virginia was the only one I think we've really done over time. And this was an, it it was something that I was surprised and to find, Um, but it is still a factor in Virginia admissions. Um, we have a question from Devin Westhull, somebody I know well because he is president of the Hi, Center for Opportunity. Uh, Devin asks, would the compelling state interest in the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body, uh, and he's addressing this to you, Ted, require uh, historically back colleges and universities uh, and Puerto Rican schools to enroll less minorities and more whites? Yeah, it's interesting. And so, I mean, leaving the history of how these institutions came about aside, because there's a whole case for for um, their, the way their student body looks connected to the history of their founding. Um, I, I remember I went to an HBCU. I, I went to Hampton University, and I remember telling this to one of my fellow colleagues uh, when I first became an officer. And he was like, you know, HBCUs are racist because white students can't go there. And I said, that's not true. In fact, you can get a minority scholarship for being a white student going to an HBCU. And then he said, yeah, but why would I want to go there? Um, so there's, there's uh, even if HBCUs were to prioritize making their students, like say tripling the number of white students that go there, um, you have to find white students that are okay, that desire to want to go to an HBCU. And that is not easily done. Um, I, having that's so that's that's one point. Another point is um, there is actually an HBCU that is almost ninety percent white. It's Bluefield State College University in West Virginia, an HBCU because it was founded under the Act that created many HBCUs in the nineteenth century. But the demographics of that community have changed, you know, drastically over the past century plus. And so now it serves its mostly white community and the student body, I think, is like 85 or so percent white, but it is still an HBCU. Um, and so if, if HBCUs were not interested in a diverse student body, um, I think another one is Delaware State that has, is, um, I want to say maybe a third of its student body, I could be wrong there, but a large number of its students are not black. Um, it's this kind of goes back to the question of interest that was mentioned earlier. University interests are to bring to admit students who attend, who graduate, who give back money, who pay tuition, and sometimes it's in their interest to diversify their student body. Um, and uh, and many HBCUs are learning this. Uh, white enrollments at HBCUs has increased over the last couple of decades, 
almost across the board. Um, and then again, in some places that those numbers are, are big. So if, if again, as to the question, if we do believe diversity is a compelling state interest, shouldn't we see these institutions increasing their white enrollments, HBCUs in particular? And I would say that's actually happening. And the one of the reasons it hasn't happened more is because there, um, there are not a lot of white students who have HBCUs at the top of their list to attend. I'm going to um, throw this question uh, open probably uh, to you, Ted, because you are a lawyer. Um, but Althea, you can weigh in as well. And, and it's really I'm just a, I'm just a doctoral guy. I'm, I'm not a JD. Oh, you're not a JD. <laughs> no, oh, no. OK. Yeah. All, right. All right. So you're a doctor, doctor of law. OK. Um, so, uh, well, then, but you can weigh in. Well, well none of us, not, none of us then uh, on on this panel uh, are JDs. Um, but the question has to do with the difference between public and private universities. And of course, uh, the cases before the court, uh, this term, one is private school, Harvard University, the other is the University of North Carolina, state school. Uh, and traditionally, um, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which says that if you receive a single dollar, of federal aid, uh, you are subject to uh, the civil rights laws and you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. So that applies to Harvard um, as well as uh, state schools. The 14th amendment of course uh, applies specifically, uh, makes it unconstitutional for the state to engage in, uh, in discrimination. Uh, but if we're talking about private schools, um, the question is, why not just let private colleges and universities use any criteria they want to decide whom to offer admission? There are a couple of, of schools in the country that don't take uh, federal aid, uh, Hillsdale College and Grove City College. Uh, these were uh, involved in a very uh, significant law case back in the 1980s, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, they because they don't take aid, uh, Title uh, does not um, apply directly uh, to them. Uh, but uh, what about that? Just in, in theory, either of you, uh, both, both of you can reply. Ken? Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, I think you made all the points that I was going to make that, you know, private institutions that take money from the government are bound um, state institutions are bound by the 14th Amendment. Um, so if we were to say, let's let's build a school or we take one of these schools and say, OK, we're just going to do whatever we want and admit whoever we want based on whatever set of characteristics we want. Um, I, I guess that is possible. Uh, but would we be OK if there was a school that said we don't want any black people here? Or a school that says we don't want any immigrants um, or any, you know, any uh, Mexicans or, or something here. Um, I don't think, if if we are true to our principles, that we would be okay with that kind of school being um, being allowed to openly and explicitly discriminate against a class of people based on their race or ethnicity alone, um, just so that they can create the kind of environment that that they that they hope to. Um, I, I don't, you know. Um, so generally, I don't think it's a good idea to give private institutions the ability to openly discriminate on the basis of race. Um, and, and I don't know if I can answer it any, any better than that. Um, and, and certainly, if we were to allow such schools to, to, to um, sort of spread around, we know from our history that whenever people don't like what their public school system is doing, the, the thing they do is create private schools to to execute the kind of discrimination they wish the public sector had done. And so if we make the private sector a release valve for intolerance from our society, I don't see how that benefits um, our society as a whole. Um, uh, never mind the people that aren't admitted, but even the people that are admitted and attend, I don't think they come out the other end better Americans from um, from opting into an institution that explicitly discriminates on the basis of race. Well, and, I don't know and if that's a good answer. And, and probably uh, they've had few, few students. Uh, by the way, one of the um, factors in terms of being a recipient of, of federal aid or of, of uh, federal money is if you take students who get uh, federally that's guaranteed right. student loans, that's et cetera. Right. So, right. so it doesn't have to be direct. You don't have to directly receive. Uh, money. Um, so there are very few schools um, right. where that's the case. Again, Hillsdale, I think, does not ex um, uh, allow 
uh, federal aid to be used to pay for tuition there. They have a very generous endowment and, and mm. they give uh, lots of scholarships as a result. Um, let me ask something, follow up uh, with something uh, that is implicit in, in all of this uh, discussion. And that is the criteria that are used for college admissions. We saw during the pandemic that many schools dropped uh, the requirement for SATs or ACTs, the standardized tests that are usually used. Uh, MIT, I think this last week, uh, decided to reinstate that. Uh, and um, of course, you know, they are doing so because they want to re uh, maintain their elite status. And isn't, um, isn't that one of the questions, if we had open enrollment at all schools, if there were no differentiation between schools that were competitive uh, with the best teachers and the top students uh, and those who let basically anybody in uh, who could pay the, uh, the freight, um, that would uh, resolve the problem uh, of, of uh, various uh, barriers uh, to access. Uh, why do you think, Althea, maybe I'll throw this one to you, why do you think that uh, universities do an MIT now having reinstated SATs? What, what is the value of standardized testing? Um, standardized testing combined with high school grades, they say are the best predictors of first year college performance. Of course, after that, you know, kids drop out, they change majors that are more in line with how they did. So it doesn't, it's harder to predict beyond it, but it's definitely those two in combination become the best predictors. Um, I would add one more factor, which has been, I think only the last five, 10 years, AP testing and AP classes, especially the AP tests. When schools, when universities drop use of SATs, um, kids will still submit their AP scores, they will submit their AP classes, because if you think of the process and the 60, you know, 45, 50,000 applicants that they get for some place like Michigan, you have to figure out how are you going to differentiate yourself as the high school, you know, student from all others and all this other stuff. Well, it will still come in the back door. So at least, I, I mean, in the case of MIT, I guess they're they're just standardizing it and they don't have to deal with the issue of interpreting whether an AP class in this high school versus that high school is the same AP class and not everybody submits AP tests. So I would also uh, argue that um, the whole uh, reason a standardized tests were developed in the first place and used as a criteria was to try to eliminate uh, the kind of discrimination uh, to make them more colorblind. You, you've got, in, in some cases, you have just numbers associated uh, with a, an applicant rather than a name because names mm -hmm. can also be identifiers of race and, and, right. and ethnicity in particular. Um, but it was, it was to try to, in, in a certain sense, level the playing field. Um, and, you know, it's ironic that now uh, these very same tests are derided for being uh, discriminatory and for dis okay. uh, discriminating. Yeah, uh, in that regard, um, I do have to add that, you know, I came from a rural high school in Hawaii, very rural, um, and the SATs, served as a way of, you know, flagging my application and standardized my abilities in a way like nobody would have noticed like this rural high school and back in the, I mean, they would have just tossed it in the out basket because we didn't have AP classes. Um, we had very few honors programs, you know. So in defense of those who would, need something like an SAT score as a marker, you know, to single us out. Um, I think that's the plus side of having in having testing. Um, even if MIT would not use tests, students would still, I, I would argue, they would submit it anyway. <laughs> it would be very hard, you know. Not to there, notice. There is an excellent piece in the Wall Street Journal by Jason Riley. 
talking about the MIT decision. And it mentions the fact that not having the ACT and SAT scores did exactly what you feared uh, what would have happened to you, Althea, that it actually raised the socioeconomic mm -hmm. uh, barriers. It didn't, you know, it didn't lower them uh, because there were students who attended either inner city schools or rural schools um, may not have had access to those AP classes. And it was only their test scores that made them competitive. Um, so um, I think that's true. Well, um, we have reached the end of our time. We didn't get to all the questions, but I wanna thank Althea uh, and Ted both for participating and turn it back to you, Nate. Well, as advertised and expected, I think this was an excellent discussion uh, and great participation from our audience. Our thanks to Linda, Althea and Ted uh, for your time and expertise this afternoon. Uh, from our audience, we welcome feedback by email at rtp at regproject.org. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a great day.